Lord, I'm struck by words of David, King David, to his son Solomon that we'll read a little later this morning, that you know every intention of our heart. You know our thoughts. You know the words before we speak them. You know where we'll go before we go there. That great song that we open with this morning, Lord, you're before us, you're behind us, you're above us, you're below us. Lord, it is in you that we live and move and have our being. It's by your doing that we take each breath. Lord, you are the sovereign and omnipotent God and we bow before you this morning and ask that your spirit would enable us to see the things that are true both about you and about ourselves and the world and the time we occupy. Help each one of us just to hear those things you mean for us. Lord, help us not to take on other people's burdens. On the other hand, help us not to be dull to what you might want to be instructing us about this morning. So open our eyes and our ears to receive those things from you this morning. And then, Lord, as we worship later, help us to have unbound hearts towards you, to not be restrained or held back by any issues, but uh, to freely give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. The movie that came out a couple years ago called Bruce Almighty. And uh, Kathy and I went to see it at the Dollar Theater. And I was uh, surprised because I thought it was so funny. So then we took the girls to see it the next night. And my wife told me she went back the next night to watch me laugh at the movie because she thought that was as funny as the movie itself. And uh, there's a, you know, you, you're trying to be careful anytime you mention a movie or a book. Like most movies or books, it's not without its downside. So if you're a parent, you need to take that into consideration based on language. But it's a hilarious movie in a couple ways. One of the funny parts in the movie is when Bruce, he, the story is kind of he's trying to get ahead in life, like almost all of us are, and he just feels like his wheels are turning and he's going nowhere. And life's going by and he's missing the train. He's totally frustrated in his disappointing life, and he's going. He's driving at night. He's just had a fight with his girlfriend, and he's desperate. So he starts praying, and he says, please, or excuse me, he says, what should I do, God? Send me a signal. And as he prays this, he's driving down the road, there's this flashing road signal that says, caution ahead. But you know, he's so intent on his dissatisfaction in his praying, he doesn't even see it. And he goes along and he says again, Lord, please send me a sign. And this public works truck pulls out in front of him and it's filled with road signs that say stop and caution. And he, he doesn't see those either. And so he gets ticked and he drives around the truck and he wrecks his car. And then he gets out and he starts railing against God for doing such a lousy job of running the world and his life. Bruce didn't see the warning signs. They were there. They were flashing. They were in the truck, and he didn't see them. And, you know, frankly, uh, you and I tend to be about the same way. And I would say both related to promises God makes that we're dull or ignorant, as well as the warnings he gives us. And this is actually what we're going to look at this morning in 1 Kings 9. You can go there if you want. This is a short passage. It's only verses 1 through 9. And the setting for this is, if you remember... In chapter 8, Solomon and Israel dedicated the temple. The temple, this grand structure was done. This cloud of glory has come down. God has shown that he's going to live in this place and meet with Israel at this new temple. 
and they've dedicated it. And when they dedicated it, Solomon, if you remember, we, we kind of went through a laundry list. He prayed that God would honor Israel by occupying the temple and listening to prayers made to God from the temple or towards the temple. So the dust is settled, the temple's up and going, and in chapter 9, God reappears to Solomon after this occasion. Chapter 9, 1 Kings. Now it came about when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. And that's at chapter 3. And if you remember in chapter 3, it's the beginning of Solomon's reign. And God comes to him in a dream and says, Solomon, what do you want? What would you like me to give you? Solomon asks for wisdom and God honors him because of that and then promises him wealth and success also. But in chapter 3, God appears to him beginning of his reign and says, what do you want? This is about 20 years later. This is about the midway mark of his 40-year reign. And God shows up again. And when he shows up this time, he says, the Lord said to him at verse 3, I have heard your prayer and your supplication, which you have made before me back at the dedication. And I have consecrated this house, which you have built, by putting my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Solomon, I heard your prayer. I'm going to answer it. The prayer was in, in chapter 8, verse 29, that God's eyes would be toward this house night and day, that he would listen to the prayer which your servant prays towards this place. God says, Solomon, done. I've set apart the temple in Jerusalem to put my name there. And the cloud of glory is there so everyone knows I'm there. I'm there to meet with you. And my eyes and my heart will always be there. This is a kind of an emotional response. God doesn't just say, I'll listen to the prayers you make. He says, my eyes will be there and my heart will be there. That is, you'll have my attention and you'll have my affection. You'll have my positive disposition towards you. So Solomon, I've answered both your prayers. My name's there, and when you pray to me from there, or when you pray to me towards the temple, yes, my eyes, my heart, my affections, my positive disposition will be to hear the prayers made from there. So I've heard your prayer. Solomon's addressed God. God says, I've heard you, and I'm going to do it. <clears throat> this is great so far. If you and I, if we got this far, we'd be doing good, wouldn't we? We pray, and God says, you got it. I'll give that to you. We'd say, oh, that's good. But God goes on. Verses 4 through 9 form the portion that we'll park in here. Verses 4 and 5, God gives Solomon a promise. But like many promises in Scripture, this is what we call a conditional promise. And then in verses 6 through 9, along with the promise, God gives him a warning. This is also true of many promises made in the Old Testament. A promise based on conditions along with a warning. In your Bibles, I'll tell you what I've done in mine, in verses 4 and 5, I've circled the word if, and then I circled the word then. In, in verse 4, I circled if. In verse 5, I circled then. Why? Because those two are tied together. Conditional promise. That little word if has huge implications. If means that's the condition. And if is the hinge upon which the promise of God moves. It's a conditional promise and it hinges on if. And this is what God says to Solomon. I've answered your prayer already. So that's good to go. That's taken care of. We're on the same page. But now 
Verse 4, If you will walk before me as your father David walked, in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and if you will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised to your father David, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So God says this. Here's a promise. Solomon, if you'll do these things, if you'll meet these conditions, and these are the conditions, if you'll walk with me in integrity or your whole heart, if you'll do what I've commanded and you'll keep my statutes or ordinances, basically, Solomon, if you'll walk with me according to the law, the law of Moses, if you'll do that, then I'll establish your throne forever and you'll always have a descendant ruling Israel. This is the conditional promise. Now, the promise was also made to David, and that's why Solomon occupies the throne at this time. But now God makes the same conditional promise to Solomon for his future and for his children. Solomon, if you'll be faithful, essentially, if you'll walk with me and obey me, then you'll always have a son to sit on the throne of Israel. Your descendants will always rule Israel. But it's a conditional promise. I'll mention Deuteronomy 28 through 30 again later, but talking about a formula, a promise with a warning, this is pretty typical Old Testament stuff. And if you go to Deuteronomy 28, towards the end of Deuteronomy, this book where Moses has gone over with Israel before the end of his life, his history with them in the wilderness. And in 28 through about 30, Moses reiterates the condition of the covenant God made with Israel. And you remember, it's a conditional covenant. And in chapter 28, at verse 1, Moses told them this, If you diligently obey the Lord your God, if you're careful to do all His commandments which I command you today, then the Lord God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Back in Moses' day to Israel, Moses says, look, here's this list. And if you go to Deuteronomy 28, you'll see it's a great thing. He says, if you'll obey me, if you'll walk with me, if you'll do right, he said, I'll make you the head of the nation, not the tail. You'll lend to others, you won't borrow. You'll get rain in season, your crops will be abundant. You'll have children and descendants. Life will be good, it'll be great. If you walk with me, Conditional promise. Same thing God's saying to Solomon. Conditional, it all turns on if. And the if is what you do, Solomon. Or what you do, Israel. If you want the promise, you've got to fulfill the conditions. This passage doesn't stop there. It goes on to a warning. Verses 6 through 9. Got a conditional promise, and God includes a warning with it. Verse 6. But... If you or your sons indeed turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, and you go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and the house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. So Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. In other words, your destruction will be known to all the world. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss and say, Why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? 
And they will say, Because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them, therefore the Lord has brought all this adversity on them. Here's, it's a conditional statement again. If you turn away from me, if you don't keep my, my, my commands and statutes, if you serve and worship other gods, conditional again, then God says, I will cut off Israel from the land, I will cast out my temple, and I will make it into a rubble heap. Why? What's the condition? Because they forsook the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt. They forsook the Lord their God. God said, if you forsake me, I'll bring judgment. There will be destruction. It's conditional both ways. Obey me and get blessing. If you obey me, you'll get blessing. But also the warning is, if you leave me, you'll suffer and it'll be big time. As far as the warning goes, Solomon gets the warning here. With the promise, he gets the warning. This isn't the first warning he's heard, though. In fact, at the beginning of his reign, when David was still alive at the transition of power in 1 Chronicles 28.9, David warns Solomon, and he says this, My son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts. He understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. If you forsake him, he will reject you forever. That's a pretty stern warning. See, Solomon started his reign with this. It's a promise on one hand. Solomon, this is the promise. If you seek him, you'll find him. And this is the warning. And Solomon, if you forsake him, he'll reject you. And again, remember for King David, the king before him was rejected. And he saw that. I've mentioned this before, but when you read Psalm 51, remember that God's talking about His Spirit coming upon Him for service, and God had seen the Holy Spirit removed from King Saul. When Saul was rejected because of his unfaithfulness, God took His Spirit from him. And David says, Oh Lord, don't let me disobey. Don't, don't let that happen to me. That's the context of Psalm 51. David had seen God reject a king. And he didn't want it. And he didn't want that to happen to his son Solomon. So at the very beginning, King David wisely says to his son, the next king, the conditions. Be faithful to God and he'll bless you. He'll let you find him. He's life. It'll be good. On the other hand, the warning, but know this. If you reject him, if you pursue those other gods, he will reject you. And David had context for that in remembering King Saul. <clears throat> Now, <clears throat> this appears to be a no-brainer. Back to Solomon. Here's the smartest guy in the world, right? He's the wisest man who's ever lived. Besides Jesus, God incarnate on the earth, Solomon's the wisest man who's ever lived. He's the brainiest brain. He's the smartest intellectual. If, if it can be known, he knows it. So God goes to Solomon and he says this. Solomon, I'll make this easy. Choose door A. You get life and blessing forever. Choose door B, and I reject you forever. Now, this appears to be a no-brainer. This should be easy. But, of course, it's, it's a little more complicated than that, isn't it? And uh, the next time we look in 1 Kings, we're actually skipping the rest of chapter 9 and chapter 10, which I've taught on before. We'll go to chapter 11. And if you've read Solomon's story, you know how, this, how the story ends. The wisest guy in the world, what does he do? chooses door B. 
Go figure. We'll talk about that in chapter 11. But you'd think this is easy. God says, here's life, choose life, okay. Or here's death, choose death. Seems, it seems obvious, right? But, you know, the truth is, <clears throat> just like Adam, you know, if you and I were in the garden, if we were Adam, even if you're an Eve, if you were an Adam, you know, we, we would have done the same thing, right? And if you and I were Solomon, wisest, smartest, wealthiest, etc., best looking, yeah, chances are we'd, we'd do the same thing, wouldn't we? Yeah, afraid so. It looks like it should be a no-brainer, but the truth is it's not. By the way, when you read the stories in the scriptures, you see that we always come out short on this stick, on this conditional promise. God says, hey, I want you to do one thing, and life will be good, and I can bless you. And, or just avoid one thing. And just do these other things, and everything will be good. And, and you know, we just always, we always go right or we always go left. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy 28 and then 30. This is brief, but this is such a great passage. And for me, this sets the decisions we make about conditional promises and their attendant warnings. It puts them in perspective. In Deuteronomy 28, 15, remember Deuteronomy 28, 1 was God says through Moses, hey, obey, it's great, you're the best, you get the best, you get life. In verse 15, he says, It'll come about if you don't obey the Lord your God to observe to do all His commandments and His statutes with which I charge you today that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And by the way, it's interesting. When you read the conditions, the promises, they're great. They're kind of short. And then God takes pages and chapters to list the curses. You know, and I say to myself, why is that? And I think it has something to do with this. We know if it's good, it'll be really good. But we tend to believe that the stove that my mom tells me not to touch, it really isn't hot. And so God goes to these extra measures or these extra lengths to tell you how bad it will really be if you choose to take door B. So he doesn't just say it'll really be bad. He goes on and on and on. He does. It's depressing. It's depressing. But I think it's because he wants to tell them, guys, it won't just be bad. It'll be worse than your imaginations could make it. So it'll be so bad that, in a sense, he wants to frighten them, appropriately so. He wants to tell them that stove really is hot, and if you touch it, you really will get burned. And even if you don't know what a burn feels like, you won't like it. So don't go there. And that's what he does in the warning passages in Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30. And then he goes to this in Deuteronomy 30. And I think this is the way that we look at the conditional promises and the warnings that come with them, whatever that looks like in your life and mine. I think this frames it pretty nicely. Deuteronomy 30. Moses says, God says through Moses, I've set before you today life and prosperity, door A, and death and adversity, door B in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, keep His commands and His statutes and His judgments, that you may live. You want life? Do this. Live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if, 
There's the condition again. There's the warning comes in. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you're crossing the Jordan to enter. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you can live. And your descendants, and this is the choice, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, by holding fast to Him, this, He, is your life and the length of your days that you may live in the land which He swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. This is exactly what God's saying to Solomon. He's saying, Solomon, if you'll put me first, if you'll walk with me in integrity and you'll obey me the way you started, Remember, we've looked at the beginning of his rule. This is the way Solomon started. But halfway through, God gives him a warning. Solomon, you've got to finish well. You began well, good start, but that's not the end. Finish well. So he warns him, just like this Deuteronomy passage. And in the law, <clears throat> God says through Moses, guys, if you'll follow me and if you'll obey me, you'll get life and it'll be great. But if you turn from me, you get death. And Moses is making it just as clear as it can be. Live and have life and abundance and joy or perish. And then he goes into the description and he paints it as vividly as he can. And when you and I face these Solomon confrontations, these conditional promises and God's warnings, we're in the same boat. We're right here with Solomon. We're right here with Israel in Deuteronomy 30. And it's if God says, guys, choose life. If you'll do this, this is what you'll get. Life and goodness, joy. And if you go over here, this is what you'll get. Death, and it'll be really, really bad. It'll be worse than you imagine, not better. <clears throat> now, historically, when you read the biblical record, we see everybody almost choosing what? Death. <laughs> Why is that? You know, we have this built-in propensity. A Solomon, by the way, calls it insanity in our hearts. We have built-in insanity. Since the fall, you and I have a predilection to be like those lemmings who run off the edge of the cliff to our death. We have this predisposition to do what we're not supposed to do. It's called our sinful nature. And if you're a human on planet Earth, you've got it. If you're a Christian, you've still got it too. It just doesn't have the power that it used to to control you anymore. And that's Romans 6, 7, and 8. talks about that new spiritual life and power we have because we've been saved and we have the Holy Spirit. But that old sinful tendency, it's still there. And all of us face this. In fact, when Paul describes it, he says the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. There's a civil war going inside every Christian because we have these opposing natures that are at work, one against the other. And again, the truth is, the old sinful nature, it actually doesn't have power to rule us. Before we're saved, all we can do is sin. Whatever it looks like, no matter how good our life looks like on the outside, God says everything we do is sin because we, we don't even approach His threshold of righteousness and everything we do is inherently self-serving and independent from Him. Once we get saved, though, that old sinful life, it does not control us. Paul makes this clear, though most of us I don't walk very free, and I, I certainly count myself in this too. But all of us, we still face this same battle. We have this predisposition to choose door B. 
to choose death. I'm kind of asking myself, well, God, if I always fall off to the left or the right, off the path that I should be taking in the middle, why warn me? I think there's a couple reasons. There's probably many more, but at least a couple. God is a good leader. And, you know, he warns us ahead, in a sense, because he wants us to be aware of what's coming. So if he tells me, Mike, this is going to happen to you in the next week, and you need to be prepared because you'll need to be thinking ABC or whatever, then I'm prepared for it. It's like a test, right? If I know the teacher in my class says, you've got a test coming up Tuesday, I say, okay, well, I've got to prepare for that so that when it comes, I'll be ready. God's a, a, a doting father. He's a faithful leader, and he tells us what's coming so that we'll be prepared. I think the other thing, though, is <clears throat> when God tells us ahead, choose life or choose death, this is what you do to choose life, this is what you do to choose death, when he tells us that ahead, when the time comes and we make our decisions, those decisions are made in an informed manner. In other words, those tests, those decisions we make, they reflect where we're really at. They reflect our heart. So that we can't say to God, I'm sorry, I didn't know that. I didn't know the cookie jar was off limits. Lord, I'm so sorry. If I'd only known, I wouldn't have done it. The Lord says, no, I told you what life was, and I told you what death was like. I told you, I warned you on this side, and I gave you a promise on that side, and you chose death anyway. It makes my decisions all the more culpable, as it were, or all the more glorious when I choose life. But at least for those two reasons, he warns us ahead to be prepared, and it also makes our decisions all the more clear. It reflects our heart all the more clearly. You'll notice if you compare the New Testament with the Old Testament that in the Old Testament, before Christ's death and resurrection, before payment for our sin was made, you'll see the conditional promises like this. This is the norm. If you go to the New Testament, you won't see this same kind of language, at least in the same sense. You'll still see, if you look up the word if, and it's used over 300 times in the New Testament, uh, it's not generally tied to conditional promises like this. I'm not saying it's exclusively so, but generally not. It just says, you know, uh, uh, it gives us normal if statements, not tied to the conditional promise or warning. But you do have passages like this in Galatians 6. Paul says to the Galatians and to you and I, he says, don't be deceived. Don't trick yourself. God isn't mocked. You can't get by. You can't pull a fast one on God. Whatever a man sows, this will he also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh, that is his sinful nature, will from the flesh reap corruption. That's death. That's door B. But the one who sows to the Spirit, walks with the Spirit, walking in fellowship with God, will from the Spirit reap eternal life. You sow to the Spirit and you'll get life. This is like the promise. Mike, Rachel, Stan, whoever, you know if you'll walk with the Spirit, you'll get life. But also, if you sow to your sinful nature, if you do those things that are, you know are deficient and lacking, then you're going to get death. It can't be any other way. And sometimes we might tell ourselves, well, I'm a Christian and Jesus has paid for my sins. And that's true. But it doesn't mean that those decisions we make that dishonor God won't come back to pay us in spades. Because they do. There's still this cycle about if you sow something, you reap it. And many of us, will, probably most of us here, have some elements in our life along that line now. Decisions we made in the past that we wish we hadn't because there's some lasting effect of death in our life because of it that we'd go back and change if we could. Sin brings death. 
it brings God's judgment also. He says it here in Galatians 6. But if you walk in the Spirit, you'll get life. It's the choice, just like Solomon had. Choose door A, choose life, or, cho- or choose door B, the warning, and get death. <clears throat> if you're a student today in here, you might be faced with life or death choices like, uh, do you study hard <laughs> to pass your classes? You know, you know the tests are coming. Do you do your homework? Do you get prepared for them? Are you faithful in all that? Or do you cheat to get past the test to go on? And those decisions you make, of course, they're not just uh, helping you or hindering you passing a test or not. They're, they're forming the character and the person that you are. And so you choose life and you do it right, or you choose death and you don't. And even if it doesn't seem like death right away, it, it adds up and it, and it does come back because you're sowing those seeds of death that can't help but sprout. Or if you're a young man or woman, and we've got a few here, if you want to get married, will you be willing to hold out? For the right kind of spouse. Someone that you know will encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Or will you be willing to say, you know, that guy or that gal, they're really not what I thought I would marry, but they're good enough. And I want to get married or whatever, whatever that would sound like. You'll you'll face those decisions. You will. And they'll be there. And you'll be choosing, whether you think of it in these terms or not, you'll be choosing life or you'll be choosing death. You'll be choosing door A or door B. You'll be, uh, you'll be fulfilling the condition for blessing or you'll be saying, I choose the curse, I choose death instead. It, it will work that way. Um, if you're an employee, uh, do you steal from your employer you know, in time or other things? Or are you faithful to them and, and so through them are you faithful to God at work? Whatever that looks like. You know, all of us, we don't think God's not appearing to us necessarily. And he's not saying choose life or death in the dream like he did to Solomon. But guys, we've got the scriptures for which we're accountable. And he tells us what this looks like. And he tells us we're not under the law of Moses, but he tells us what choosing life looks like. He tells us what choosing death looks like. And so we are making these decisions in all these little areas of our life. We're making them. And I would bet that All of us in this room have made the death choices in the past, even when we knew better. Not not sins of omission, I didn't know, but sins of commission. I knew what I was doing, and I did it anyway. And you know, if you find yourself in that situation, there still is forgiveness. This is not a small thing. If I sin, I disrupt, I put an impediment between God my Father and me, and so I'm not free to have the kind of fellowship and close relationship with with him that I would because there's this thing between us now. And so when I've blown it, I can go to my dad, and I do, and I say, Lord, I blew it again. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And he does. And then he and I, we're free to get on in fellowship. That's a good thing. The flip side, though, too, is that there may still be elements of my decision in my life that I wish weren't there, but they're there because I made certain decisions, and so the fruit of those decisions may still be there. And with those, then I ask God, Lord, help me through. Help me to be faithful even with this stuff. Or help me to be faithful with these things. Or help me to bear up under the repercussions of my decision. If, if that's where you find yourself, don't. it's not as if there's no hope. Confess your sin to God and be forgiven so your relationship's restored. 
and ask him for help. It's, he will not turn you away. If you're a Christian, you're his kid, you're his child. And he is, a doting father is not uh, too emotional a term to apply to God the Father, who calls himself dad or daddy, the Hebrew word Abba in Romans 8. So if you've blown it, it's not the end of the world. There may be some difficult things in your life, but confess your sin, get right with your father, and then ask him for help in the things that are in your life. And when you sense that you're at one of these conditional times where you've got decisions to make or you're being tempted towards one thing or another, and you know there's life and death, there's the little if word in your life, if I do this, I figure this will come, and, but if I do this, then this will come. Um, I'm finding uh, comfort, I guess I would say, or help in Hebrews 4 with this, knowing that I have a built-in madness, that I'm a lemming inside that will run over the cliff given half a chance. I'm running to Hebrews 4, where it says this about Jesus. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses but one who's been tempted in all things, all the ways we've been tempted, he has, yet without sinning. When I'm being faced with a temptation, when the warnings come up and I still want to go that way, or when the conditional promise is there and I feel like I'm going to blow it anyway, Hebrews says, I have a high priest who knows what it's like to be in that same predicament. And he says, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, when God appears to Solomon in the dream or when God speaks to you or to me or when we find ourselves in those situations where we're making decisions and we feel like we're going to blow it again, just pause. You can tell yourself, Lord, I know you've been in the same predicament. It might not look exactly the same, but Hebrews says Jesus has been tempted in all the kinds of things we can be tempted with. Situations may not be identical, but the kind of temptation is. Jesus has seen it all. He didn't sin like you and I do, but he's been tempted in the same way as a human who walked the earth, same flesh and blood, same kind of emotion, same wiring, sin apart. He knows what this looks and feels like. He has sympathy for us. He wants to help. So the writer to Hebrews says, when you're in this kind of a situation, go to him, this sympathetic high priest who wants to intervene on your behalf, and tell him, I'm ready to blow it again. I know what I should do. I know that I should do the right, Romans 7, but I always find myself doing the wrong. Lord, help me get it right this time. You know, all of us will sin in life. There's just, it's a given. And God says that we'll sin. First John says we'll sin. James says we sin. Solomon earlier said there's no one on earth who doesn't sin. So we know we're going to sin. And when we do, confess it. Get right with your father. Ask him for help with any of the repercussions from that death-choosing choice we made. But when these things are coming up, flee to Christ. Flee is not too strong a word. Fall on your face, whatever. But go to him and tell him about it and ask him for strength. Strength to help in time of need. Solomon blew it. And not only did he suffer for it, as we'll see in chapter 11, his descendants suffer for it. 
The nation suffers for it. The nations around them suffer for it. The death goes on and on and on. I think the thing for you and I is, we know we're going to blow it, but you know, I think we can have some victories too, where we can face some of these things and we can actually come through and choose life. We have the Spirit, and when we're faced with these temptations and we hear the if, which way am I going? Am I going left or right? Am I choosing door A or door B? Just pause and just say, Lord, I know you're in this with me. Help me to choose life. Help me to do right and have no regrets tomorrow. Let's pray. Lord, I'm struck by how frequently and faithfully we blow it that even given your spirit and forgiveness and promises, Lord, we still so consistently choose death. Lord, we wouldn't tell ourselves we're doing that, but when we choose sin, we're choosing death. Father, help each one of us in our own mind so that the mask uh, on death is ripped off so that we see, that we understand that when we choose something that's not from you, uh, no matter how attractive it appears at the moment, Lord, it's death. If it's not from you, it's death. Help us to realize that. Lord, help us to flee to you when we are tempted to do those things or choose those things that will put us at odds with you and bring death into our lives. Lord, thanks that we don't have to do that, but that you've given us your spirit. You have actually, you've told us, crucified us with Christ there on the cross so that our sinful nature doesn't have the power to rule us. Lord, help us to die to those things within that would pull us down towards death and help us so that we make decisions that honor you and that mean life for us and for those around us. And Father, I pray with each of these decisions that we are becoming more and more like you. When you look at us, Lord, might you see more and more growing within us the image, the perfect image of your Son, the Lord Jesus. In his name, amen.